Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Social Flight Live. We have a great show for you this evening. Mike Bush is back with us, CEO of Savvy Aviation. If you don't know Mike Bush, then chances are you've been probably hiding under a rock somewhere or uh, not really that into aviation because the bottom line is that he is the best known A&P and IA in general aviation. He writes a monthly Savvy Maintenance column for AOPA Pilot, hosts free monthly maintenance webinars for EAA, and he, of course, runs Savvy Aviation with all of their services, uh, which uh, we'll talk about a little bit towards the end of the show where he can help you analyze all of your problems, provide services on the road, pre-buy, all sorts of other uh, things uh, to help you. And of course, Mar uh, um, the number of accolades that Mike Bush comes with is just uh, too many to list. But the bottom line is he was honored as the National Aviation Maintenance Technician of the Year by the FAA Administrator back in 2008, been a pilot and aircraft owner for more than 55 years with over 8,000 hours logged with ratings from commercial single multi-engine seaplane glider, CFWI, and of course, AMP and IA. Welcome, Mike. How are you? Yeah, I hear my name mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming back. This has become a, a, a staple here on Social Flight Live to have you on the show. And we are going to talk engine diagnostics tonight. Yeah. And uh, there's no one I respect more about that than you. And we got a good turnout tonight. Look at that. Yeah. Well, hey, you're a great draw. <laughs> so, um, you know, when we talk about engine diagnostics, I figured a cool flow for the evening would be to think about it the way a flight actually goes and focus on the different things. So let's start with starting. Um, hard starting. What are some of the things that come to mind for you, for people that have challenges and issues around that? Well, um, there are two different kinds of issues with, with, with hard starting. Um, one has to do with when you try to start the engine and the prop doesn't turn. There you um, go. <laughs> and the other is when the prop turns, but the engine won't start. So let's take them one at a time. Uh, if the if if you try to start the engine and the uh, and and the prop doesn't turn or it just twitches or something like that, um, then you either have a problem with a starter motor, or you have a problem with the battery or you have a problem with uh, the, uh, the starter drive adapter, the thing that couples the, the starter to the engine. Now, um, Lycomings have a pretty simple starter drive adapter. It's basically uh, a, a gear engagement system that, that, that's either engaged or it isn't engaged. Um, when Lycomings have a problem in this area, typically what happens is you turn the key, you hear the starter turning at some ungodly high RPM and nothing's happening. And it's because the, the Bendix drive is not extended and, and, and engaged in the, uh, in the ring gear. And that's because it got dirty. And typically right. you, you just spray it with some, 
some spray solvent and clean it up a little bit and everything works fine. Um, some of the more modern uh, Lycoming starters uh, use a, an enclosed thing that doesn't get as dirty as the, as the older style ones. Continental has a, a, a very peculiar starter drive adapter. It, it's, um, I'm, I'm not sure who invented it, but it's, it, it, it basically is a system where the starter turns a big giant coil spring that is wrapped around a knurled drum um, called a shaft gear. Uh, which is uh, which is geared to the to the crankshaft, and it works kind of like a Chinese finger trap. Um, the, the the idea is when the starter starts to crank, it the the spring tightens up on the shaft gear and engages it kind of like a weird clutch, turns the crankshaft, and and then once the engine fires and the engine's turning faster than the starter. Uh, the spring kind of releases its grip on the shaft gear and and uh, and, and the whole assembly freewheels so that the starter doesn't have to run and the engine doesn't drive the starter going backwards. Mm-hmm. And it, it's sort of a peculiar arrangement. It, it works okay, but um, but doesn't work so well if if the inside of the spring or the outside of the shaft gear have have worn. Right. And and when they wear, those things start to slip. And um, the um, uh, the shaft gears are kind of expensive. The starter adapter takes about four hours to change out. It's sort of a, a pain. Um, if you get stuck with a Continental engine with a starter adapter that slips, and again, the way you tell that is you hear the starter motor turning, but the prop is is just twitching. It's not getting past a past a compression stroke. Um, then the way we usually get our clients home from a situation like this is n- not to have the starter adapter replaced, but to uh, get the FBO to bring over uh, an APU cart and hook hmm. the airplane to uh, to 14 or 28 volts. Uh, because what we found is that a starter adapter that's slipping on on battery voltage 12 or 24 will usually have another half dozen starts left in it. Uh, at higher voltage, where the starter is is turning the is tightening the spring a little more aggressively because of the higher voltage. That's so great. Usually, that's a a really good way to to get to, to get home or get to some place where you want to down the airplane long enough to have your starter adapter looked at. Let Let me um, ask you: Do yeah. do oil additives play into this at all? I mean, on one hand, you're trying to get as slippery as possible with uh, you know a bunch with additives. Uh, on the other hand. Um, you know, the, the starter adapter relationship in there with that spring is, uh, is, is one that needs a little bit of friction. Yeah, there, there's, um, it is a delicate balance. And there is a history of, of um, synthetic oils. And actually, the only full synthetic that was is Mobilab One is now, it hasn't been on the market for some years, but a semi-synthetic like Aeroshell 15W50 aggregating a- aggravating excuse me uh, starter adapter slippage in continentals um th- there are a number of reasons that we don't particularly like aeroshell 15w50 um in these engines it doesn't work real well with leaded fuel either it it, it, it tends to cause more lead deposits but it also does have a history of aggravating uh slippage of the continental starter adapters mm-hmm. so we pr- prefer oil that's that's 100 percent 
um, petroleum based. Um, like a Phillips 66? Yeah, Phillips, a Phillips XC uh, or, or a Phillips Victory Oil if you want a multi-grade oil or, you know, plain chain Aeroshell W100, which is what I've used in my airplanes for about 50 some odd years. <laughs> Works real well. Um, okay, but no I, issue. I'm, not, a, I'm not aware of any um, additives that create problems. I, I use CamGuard, for example, in my yeah, engines. Uh, I do too. Which is a has a number of, of friction modifier um, additives in 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 the package. It doesn't seem to cause any problem with with okay. um, starter and adapters. But synthetic oil has had a history of having a problem. Any issues before we move on to other diagnostic stuff that uh, with or any any news? I mean, I know there's a a new uh, starter adapter I think out there. Um, hopefully, that's uh, even better. I'm not aware of one that's even better. There are several varieties of continental starter adapters, um, but uh, but they all work on the same principle and they all okay. seem to the, the same problems. Now, so that that that's that's the part of starting where where the the, the prop doesn't turn over. The, the other half of starting when the prop does turn over, but the engine doesn't start. Uh, you know, basically, you need you need three things to get an engine running you need fuel air and spark um air is never a problem when you're sitting on the ramp at sea level so you can kind of cross that one off the list right away so normally the starting problem is is either is either fuel related or air related um fuel for starting has to do with how you're priming the, the engine um and if you're not giving it enough prime or what's more commonly a problem if you're giving it too much prime um, the engine won't start because the mixture is is, is too rich to, to to burn. So um, if if you have a persistent problem of of hard starting, the chances are pretty good that it's it's an ignition problem. And again, that kind of breaks down a little bit as to what kind of uh, ignition system you have. Right. Um, most of our engines are, are are driven by mechanical magnetos, and, and there are two starting systems for mechanical magnetos. One one is uh, um, is, is the the Bendix shower of spark system, which requires a, kind of a glorified glorified doorbell buzzer uh, to generate the spark. It's it's a pretty good system. That's what I actually have my three ten. Um, but if the if the buzzer goes bad, um, you're going to have problems starting. Yep. And um, I, I had I had one failure of, uh, of the of the starting vibrators, what they officially call a, the buzzer, <laughs> in in my 310. And basically, the symptom was you'd crank, 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 and nothing would happen. And then you take your finger off the off the start button, and immediately the engine would start. Um, and uh, that that was sort of uh, made it pretty clear that it was the uh, that it was the the starting vibrator. The, the other system that is used is um, impulse couplings. If if you uh, turn your prop by hand and you hear a clicking sound, you've got impulse couplings, and and that's a deal that that, that involves um, a, a spring and a pawl and a centrifugal fly weight that um, that starts the the engine when, when you cr when you crank. Um, the engine at starter speed, 
you know, 50 RPM or whatever it cranks, uh, the mag's not turning uh, fast enough to generate a spark that'll that, that will will jump the the uh, spark plug electrodes. So what the impulse coupling does is is it it winds up a spring as you crank the engine, and then when the spring gets wound up a certain amount. Uh, a pawl releases and snaps the mag over under spring tension at a much faster RPM than what the engine is actually turning. And it also has the uh, effect of uh, retarding the spark, which you need mm -hmm. to get the engine started. It's a mechanical device, and uh, like all mechanical device, and it's, and it's one that, that, that wears uh, over right. time. Um, so th there are a fair number of problems with impulse couplings, and that can be um, a cause of, of hard, hard starting. Some engines with impulse couplings use impulse couplings on both mags. Right. And so if, if, if you have one that's worn and one that's not worn, you still have a pretty good chance of getting started. Other engines use impulse couplings on only one mag, and they only start on a, on a single mag, they, uh, and, and then both mags come in once the engine gets started. And in those engines, um, I'm thinking of a Piper Cherokee, for example, that I think only starts on a single impulse coupling. Um, if that impulse coupling um, starts malfunctioning, it's a kind of a single point failure as far as starting is concerned. Right. But, yeah, I think grounds those, do that too, and and I think it yeah. grounds out the other magneto that's not yeah. the non. Um, uh, the, uh, I, I don't know if they were trying to save money or weight, but it but it, it it gets rid of some redundancy that would be very nice to have. Yeah, although I, I guess part of the uh, you know what you're getting at there is that if, if you have a dual impulse uh, coupling system and you're seeing a, a degradation in how your starting is going compared to how it used to go, you may want to check it out because you may be halfway to failing if one of those yeah. two is 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 doing that. And then speaking of the ultimate loss of redundancy, there's the 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 um, Bendix dual mag <laughs> that, that we find on Lycoming engines that have a D at the end of their uh, of their model number have a bend the dual mag uh, which has a single drive and a single impulse coupling driving basically two magnetos packaged into one case. Wasn't really a great idea. Probably shouldn't have gotten certified in the first place because it really defeats a lot of the redundancy. And um, what's worse, um, the mags were made by Continental and they were only used on light combing engines. What's wrong with this picture? So basically, <laughs> Continental decided, hey, only our comp comp competitors use this mag. So they decided they were going to stop supporting it. And now <laughs> dual mags have a very serious problem. Keeping them I think I think we might need to have a have to have a show at some point where we where we take all the uh, very bad ideas along the way and, <laughs> and, and and it'd be great to have the folks on if they were still around that ever came up with those just to get some answers. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You might have to have two shows to cover all of those. <laughs> That's right. So that at least gets us to there. I mean, now the other thing is that sometimes you know you could talk for a while about hot starting. Do you have any thoughts about a situation where someone would be having a hot start issue where uh, normal, proper procedures aren't solving it? There is something going on about the aircraft that's making it uh, especially difficult. Is there anything you'd look at there? Well, I mean, hot start problems normally are due to um, the vapor lock someplace in the in the system and um 
I know a lot about hot starting continental engines because I've been flying behind continental engines for 55 years. I'm not quite as expert at hot starting Lycomings, but th there is a really surefire way to to, to uh, hot start a continental engine. If if all of your normal and I don't usually do this, by the way, normally just uh, cranking it with it without uh, priming it or or without doing very much priming, we'll, we'll get it started. But if you have a persistent um, hot start problem, and some airframes are more uh, prone to this than others because it really has more to do with the engine installation than it has to do with the engine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but if you if you have a persistent hot start problem with the continental, you just can't get the thing started. Um, there's a surefire method that 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 invariably works. And, and that method consists of uh, basically putting a mixture control at idle cutoff, putting the throttle all the way in, and running the boost pump on high for about a half a minute. Yep. And what that does is it takes cool fuel from the tank, circulates it all the way through the system, all the way through the, 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 um, the fuel pump, the fuel control unit. And because the mixture is at idle cutoff, all that fuel then gets returned uh, back through the fuel pump and back to the tank. And so everything in the fuel system all the way up through the fuel control unit now gets cooled by, by, by running uh, the pump for half a minute or so. Got it. And the only thing that's left that you haven't purged yet is that little piece of the fuel system that goes from the fuel control unit to the flow divider and into the fuel nozzles. Um, so then just the slightest blip of, of, of pump with the, with the mixture control advanced will we'll put cold fuel through everything else. And it needs to be a very brief blip or you'll flood the engine. Right. Uh, and that basically takes care of the vapor lock problem and the, and the engine yeah. start, start normal. And I've found that technique to work very well uh, as well. And, and in all, uh, all else, if you have a situation where it starts to run and then it starts to die, just like you said, a little blip of the fuel pump, yeah. Um, we'll usually just push right through any of the vapor that's trapped and, and do that. So, all right, we've got our engine started. Uh, we're climbing out and temps are oh, up. You, you, you want to talk about if we got our engine started and it's running rough? Sure, let's do that. <laughs> and before we launch off into the sky. That's right. Before we launch off into the sky, we've got, we've got like a stumbling, let's say a stumbling Lycoming engine in the beginning. Yeah, so you, 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 you finally started the engine. This is a cold start, first flight of the day, and it, it's, it's running, but it's running real rough. And, um, and then as it warms up a little bit, it, it smooths out. And by the time you've taxied out to the run-up area, everything seems normal. Um, that's the symptoms that we colloquially refer to as morning sickness for obvious reasons. And it's normally caused by a sticky exhaust valve in, in one or more cylinders. Um, and it's a warning sign. Uh, it, it, like I said, normally clears itself up by the time you get to the run-up area, but it's an early sign of a problem that's developing that if you don't react to it, uh, can actually cause some significant engine damage, and in some cases can cause uh, cause in-flight emergencies and forced landings and all off-airport landings and stuff, bent push rods and uh, bad things. Um, so, uh, if you have an engine monitor, um, 
you start the engine, it's running a little rough. You turn on the, the, the master switch to power up the avionics, including your engine monitor. And, and you look at the EGT display and you discover that there's some cylinder that's not making EGT. Right. And then eventually it, it'll start making EGT when the valve um, frees up. The, the reason this is always worse when the engine is cold is because the clearance between the, the uh, exhaust valve stem and the exhaust valve guide is tightest when the cylinder head is cold and it loosens up uh, as, as it warms up. So because valve sticking is caused by the accumulation of deposits on exhaust valve uh, stems, that makes it hard for the valve to move smoothly in the guide. Um, the situation is always worse with cold cylinder head temperatures and it gets a little bit better with warmer cylinder head temperatures. So that's why the symptoms are the way they are. Right. And they're more, much more common in Lycomings than in Continentals, although they, they, they sometimes uh, occur in Continental engines, but a lot more in Lycomings. Um, in fact, I wrote a whole article on Entitled "Why Valves Stick," that's I think in the in the most recent issue of uh, AOPA Pilot Magazine that talks about the chemistry of what causes those buildups and why they're more prevalent in Lycomings and 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 what pilots can do to minimize uh, the buildup. But if you do um, have uh, you know experience morning sickness. Um, it's a really good idea to have it looked at before it gets bad enough that it can that it can damage anything or maybe even damage you. Yeah, and that's some, something. I mean, from my days with uh, Grumman's and Lycoming's, uh, I'll say it's you know really important to stay ahead of that because there are that's one of these key maintenance areas where there's things you can do before you have a problem. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of processes, and I know that there's a valve wobble test. I have I have one of those fixtures that uh, is available where your mechanic can check what the play is in the valve, see if you have too much play, too little play, uh, uh, what's going on. And there's things that they can do generally fairly easily uh, to remedy it before you get yourself into trouble. So that makes, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Right. It um, is important to, to note that the, that the problem that, that causes morning sickness, the, the sticking valve syndrome, can generally be remedied without removing the cylinder. Right. It, it does require uh, taking the valve train apart and yep. it does require taking the valve train at least partially apart in order to do the wobble test. And, and so actually I recommend doing something that's less invasive than that to begin with. And, and that is um, uh, regularly bore scoping the cylinders, which you should be doing anyway, but bore scoping, uh, but including in your bore scope exam, uh, looking at it, looking at the exhaust valve fully open, where you can visualize the lower part of the valve stem and get a pretty good idea of, of how much crud is built up on there. Mm, um, and that also gives you some pretty good feedback on your, or of your power plant management technique, because there's a lot you can do as, as, as a pilot to minimize the, the accretion of, of, of those, um, those deposits, which are actually uh, lead oxybromide deposits and um, by leaning the engine very aggressively during taxi and uh, idle and other ground operations uh, and by keeping your cylinder head temperatures in a in the sweet spot somewhere in the upper half of the 300 fahrenheit range uh, you will you will reduce the 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 amount of uh, deposit buildup and right. hopefully um, 
forestall this this problem from happening or at least making it happen a lot less often yeah and so you you can you can solve it as you just mentioned you know by by inspecting it seeing it changing your habits before you get there you can solve it by if you don't catch it at that stage. You can uh, go through the process of still leaving the cylinder on the engine. There are things where you can check it, you can ream it, other things can be done. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you avoid the worst consequence, which of course, I, I, you know, lots of people unfortunately have experienced and I have friends that uh, unfortunately ran into this, don't know how, where it sticks and, one, and, and it can actually stick out and get hit by the piston. So bad things can happen. Yeah, you, you can, you know, something's gotta give. If the valve sticks closed, then the push rod's probably going to bend, and that will pull us, put the cylinder permanently out of condition, uh, out of uh, commission. And uh, four-cylinder delight combings don't run very well on three cylinders. <laughs> um, if, what's, if the valve sticks open, that's even worse because there's a potential for what you're talking about, which is a valve strike, where the piston comes up and strikes the valve, which is supposed to be closed, but it isn't, um, and that can snap the head off of the valve stem. Um, and if it snaps it off just right and it isn't your lucky day, uh, I've seen a number of cases where it causes a disintegration of the piston and a, and a really catastrophic engine failure. In fact, I, I know of at least two fatal accidents that were caused by that. It's it's not a high probability event that, that, that the 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 head of the valve that snaps off the stem has to lodge itself just in at the right angle in order to cause the piston to disintegrate but it but it has happened a couple of times so it's nothing to fool around yeah. with what about rough running that's unrelated to uh this uh, lycoming morning sickness okay well you know it's it's kind of interesting um i i know of a lot of cases where People will complain of a rough running engine and mechanics will wind up changing magnetos, changing carburetors, doing all sorts of things. And they, they don't quite understand it, that a rough running is a very specific symptom. And it means something very specific. It means that not all the cylinders are making the same horsepower. So something that affects all cylinders equally, like a carburetor or like a magneto, can't possibly cause rough running. It can cause all sorts of other stuff, but it can't cause the engine to run rough. Uh, so if an engine runs rough, we want to look for something that can't that that is affecting just one cylinder or just a couple of cylinders. Hmm. Um, so for example, um, uh, a, a problem with a fuel injector obviously can cause rough running. Um, an induction leak. Uh, can cause rough running because it'll cause, you know, one or two cylinders to run way leaner than the other cylinders. Um, An ignition problem is less likely to cause rough running simply because even if one spark plug isn't firing, the the engine normally will run just fine on on the other spark plug. Um, So that's a less likely uh, scenario of for for rough running just because we have the the redundancy there uh, but when we're looking for the cause of a rough running engine what we should be looking for specifically is something that affects only one cylinder or 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 just a couple of adjacent cylinders something like that okay and and components that can affect all so that affect all cylinders equally are are not good candidates for being the cause of rough running got it 
Okay. So that, that makes sense. So you're looking at the things for that one for individual cylinders and what could be causing an individual cylinder to be having a problem. And Mm -hmm. when you're looking for horses instead of zebras, uh, you you don't think like one bad spark plug, it would have to be two in that case. So it's right. Exactly. And, and when, when we hear about, you know, rough running in, in, in crews and stuff, uh, one of the most common cases is, you know, one or two cylinders that are lean outliers compared to the other, you know, rotten mixed distribution. Right. And w- w- when we talk about uh, the flight test profiles a little bit later, we'll talk about how we, how we test for that and how we d- determine what the, what, what, which cylinders are the leanest and whether they're much leaner than the others and stuff. But ideally we would like all the cylinders in, in an engine to run at exactly the same mixture that they, that they never do quite mm. that, but we, we want them to be pretty close. Got it. So, um, so now we're, now we are at that stage of takeoff. And so now you're, now we're climbing out, um, a couple different things we can talk about totally separate. Um, first, what do you look at when, uh, you've got issues having to do with not getting uh, the power output that you would expect to get? Um, well, I mean, that's not a very common complaint that, mm. that we get, mostly because, to be honest with you, pilots aren't aren't, aren't uh, very good dynamometers. It, it's amazing how much performance an engine can lose without a pilot noticing it. Mm. Um, we, we have seen some situations where people say, you know, this airplane's just not climbing right, and then it turns out that there's some incredibly horrible problem going on wow but uh, pilots aren't very good at detecting subtle losses of performance uh, mm. the sort of thing we 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 uh will uh, uh, the kind of complaint we'll get most often at that phase of flight um you know uh, take off initial climb is that the cylinder head temperatures are too high right and and it's actually good that we're getting those sorts of complaints because it means that that uh, my my 20 years of trying to pound into people's heads the the notion that we have to be careful about cylinder head temperatures is starting to bear fruit. Yes. Um, but if if the cylinder head temperatures are are too high, um, there are basically two things that can cause cylinder head temperatures to be too high. Uh, one is that the cylinders aren't getting enough fuel. Right. And the other is that cylinders aren't getting enough cooling air. Um, it, and it's usually very, very easy to determine which is the case. Um, because if the, if the problem is that the cylinders aren't getting enough fuel, um, then when we get to, when we get to the cruise phase, um, they're not going to be running hot anymore. And, mm. um, Another test that we like to do is to, to is to to run the engine um, at a, ri- a rigid peak mixture for a while. Notice what all the cylinder head temperatures are. Then lean it to a lean of peak mixture and note what all the cylinder head head temperatures are. If the if, if this if a cylinder changes rank, <laughs> that is if it if 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 it was the hottest, for example richer peak and it becomes the coolest leaner peak what does that mean well that means that that cylinder was running a whole bu- bunch leaner than the other cylinders so the the just doing a quick check of the of, of the cylinder head temperatures richer peak and leaner peak 
will will tell you almost immediately whether you whether you have a a, a, a lean outlier cylinder. Right. Um, and that 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 brings us also to I think something that's really important, and that's fuel proper fuel setup on of yeah, course I, I, engines. I was going to get to that. And, uh, in Continental engines, um, the, the 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 fuel injection system is um, is highly adjustable. Uh, the, the, there are five different screws that you have to tweak to get the the Continental fuel system adjusted correctly, um, and I actually like the fact that it's highly adjustable because it means that we can set it up just the way we want it. But it's very important to have it set it up set up correctly. And um, it's it's astonishing how often we see continental powered aircraft uh, that are taking off with inadequate fuel flow simply because nobody adjusted the system correctly. Um, continental. Uh, well, it's, it's partially that, and it's partially that Continental's service um, documentation leaves a little bit to be desired. And and in in this sense, um, if you look at uh, at Continental's guidance on how to adjust the the fuel injection system, which used to be something called uh, SID ninety seven dash three, and now it's incorporated into their their manual M zero. Um, it will give a range of, uh, of, of takeoff fuel flows that are acceptable. Um, it shouldn't do that. And, and that, that's a real problem because when confronted with a range, mechanics instinctively aim for the center of the range. <laughs> but <laughs> what, what Continental says, if you read the fine print, is we want you to adjust it to the top of the range. Right. The reason we're giving you a range is to, that if it's at the bottom of the range, it's unacceptable, but we want it to be at the top of the range. Um, we even prefer to see it, uh, see the fuel flows on Continental engines just at about a half a gallon an hour greater than the top of the range, hmm. uh, just to provide a little extra cooling. Um, but, we consider the maximum that Continental specifies is kind of the minimum that you yeah. wanna that you wanna have, um, because we we really don't want these cylinders to be to be cooking themselves on, on takeoff right. and initial climb. And you know, uh, it's from, it's oh go ahead go ahead. I was gonna say you know for my part I think one of the challenges is like you said so few people actually have uh, have their mechanics that have the right equipment and are getting it set up on a regular basis. Right. There is a lot of just guesswork. I mean, you're talking uh, very appropriately about be at the top of the range that Continental is setting here, things that you can do because of that. I'm shocked by the number of people that I have talked to and come across that have never had their, uh, you know, uh, had their engine set up right. properly. You need, you know, metered and unmetered fuel gauges outside the aircraft that are calibrated to do this process, as of course you know, but I want to make sure viewers right. know this as well. And, and, and it's, even, it's even worse. It's even worse for turbocharged engines because you need differential pressure gauges, which right. very few shops have. Right. And I have even seen where people uh, read something or see something about needing the extra fuel flow, as you've mentioned. And I've come across at least one aircraft where the, they just 
cranked it up without using the proper things. And that actually gave them a performance problem because when it was finally measured, the reason they were getting such poor performances, they were running so overly rich. Mm-hmm. They were way beyond anything that you, it would be recommended that you start losing power again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, uh, there's even a, a greater catch-22 here. Not not only does is the fuel flow at at full power uh, need to be at the top of the specified range, but the fuel flow at idle has to be at the bottom of the specified range. And again, all of this is a, is in the fine print of Continental's stuff. But if you just look at the tables and you don't read the the, the text, it, you you won't get that. And it's very important to uh, to to have the thing adjusted uh, that way. Uh, there are also several other um, adjustments that you have to do, in, in, including including um, uh, the idle RPM stop, the idle mixture adjustment. Um, on uh, some turbocharged aircraft, there's an adjustment on a fuel limiter. Uh, it's it it's a fairly complicated system to adjust, and it's it's worth taking the airplane somewhere that really knows how to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, if you're, if, if you live anywhere in the Southeast, you know, take it to Fairhope and let Continental set it up. But th- there are shops, uh, various places in the country that know how to do this, but, but not every mechanic has the equipment to do it. And not every mechanic has the experience to do it. And probably the most important time uh, to get this stuff adjusted is when you change the engine. It's about the worst sin possible is to take an engine out of the crate from an engine shop and they've sort of set it up roughly on their test stand and then drop in the airplane and assume it's going to be okay. You really have to, it's super important to go through the full um, adjustment uh, protocol when when an engine is first put in the airplane. Right. Continental actually calls for doing it every every year. That's probably excessive, um, but certainly any time there's there's any reason to question any any time that there's an issue with you know cylinder head temperature on takeoff or uh, or, or the thing doesn't seem to be idling right, um, is it really good reason to go ha- have the adjustments gone through again? Right now. Um... I know that uh, obviously it's a little bit different. It's dramatically different with carbureted engines, but there are options there where there have been certain carburetors that had a variety of different nozzles that could be put in them. What's the, what's the thought on that? What's involved in, in yeah. And again, we, um, on a carbureted engine, uh, it's, it's really nice to have an engine monitor with fuel flow installed to be able to, to, to see what the fuel flow is. Typically carbureted engines, don't have any fuel flow gauges installed by the factory. Um, but if, if we have, um, let's say a Cessna 182 and, and it's running high cylinder head temperatures and we can see what the fuel flow is and we realize that it's not getting enough fuel flow on takeoff, we'll, we'll recommend uh, taking the carb, sending it to a good fuel metering um, shop and, and having them rejet the carburetor to bring the fuel flow up mm. uh, to something higher. It's not quite as easy as, as with continental fuel injection where you turn a screw, right? Uh, but but it, but it's doable, and it's it's very important for for the longevity of the cylinders to to, right. to have that to have that correct. 
So obviously the other thing that uh, uh, if, if it's not fuel, it's uh, air and uh, that uh, I, I assume basically leaves baffling. Oh, you're talking about cooling air. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, we see a lot of problems with, with, the, with uh, baffle related problems in terms of, of not having adequate uh, airflow over the cylinders. A um, couple of things about that. For, first of all, um, whenever you have the engine decaled, it's really important when you're cowling it back up to make sure that all the flexible baffle seals are pointed in the, or in the right direction when the cowl goes on. And it's really easy to screw that up if you're not paying attention to it. Um, the, 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 the baffle seals have to be oriented in a way that when the, uh, when the upper part of the cowling pressurizes in flight, um, the, the flexible seals are, are pressed tightly against the cowl rather than being, being you know, blown open and, and allowing air to, air to leak. And so the orientation of the baffle seals is important. Um, and, and it's particularly problematic if, if the baffle seals are allowed to get old and sort of flabby um, because it's a lot easier for them to, to get misoriented if that's, if that's the case. Um, another thing is that it frequently forgotten are the little inner cylinder baffles, which are the little mm. bitty funny pieces of metal that sit below and between each adjacent pair of cylinders and are and are there to prevent the air from being able to just whistle on down through the slot between the two cylinders without doing any cooling work in the process and those are sort of out of sight and often out of mind uh, you have to to get up on a ladder and stare down at them to see whether they're in place correctly one trick that we 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 often recommend to owners if they're having cooling problems is to put the airplane in a in a kind of a darkened hangar or something, stick a strong light down underneath the engine, maybe up through a cow flap or something, uh, and with the upper cowling removed, stand on a ladder and look down. Right. If you can see any light coming up, you got a problem. Okay, it means that there's something missing there. Um, we don't want to be able to if if light can get from um, from the bottom of the engine to the top of the engine, then air can get from the top of the engine to the bottom of the engine. Uh, without going through the, the through the cooling fins, and that's where we lose. Um, you know, the cooling is remarkably fragile in these airplanes. Uh, it, it depends on a pressure differential between the the upper part of the engine compartment and the lower part of the engine compartment. The baffles and baffle seals, you know, partition the the engine compartment into a high and low pressure area. And the differential pressure between those, which is what does the cooling, is only a very slight pressure difference. It's measured in inches of water rather than inches of mercury. Mm. Um, and so uh, uh, any kind of a even seemingly small uh, leak uh, where a baffle seal isn't, isn't pressing tightly against the cowling, where there's a grommet that's disintegrated somewhere where wires are going through the baffling, anything like that, uh, that, that allow air to be able to sneak from the high pressure area to the low pressure area without going through the cooling fins, uh, it's going to rob the engine of, of, of cooling air. And it doesn't take much of that to have a pretty significant effect. Yeah. Um, I, I want to mention one other thing uh, that we always want to look at when whenever 
we get a complaint of high cylinder head temperature, and that is to check uh, magneto timing. Um, magneto timing, if it is advanced, um, meaning more degrees before dead top dead center than the data plate says it should be, um, will cause uh, a very significant increase in uh, cylinder head temperature and also is quite abusive uh, on the engine. Um, the tolerances for mag timing are very tight. The, uh, I believe Continental specs mag timing to be um, something like plus zero and minus one degree from, mm -hmm. from the spec. Um, and if you do the timing with one of those, um, those flower pots, <laughs> old flower pot things that, 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 you know, that has a weighted a pendulous pointer on it, it's really easy to be a couple of degrees off with that thing. If the, if the, if the pivot is, is a little sticky and the parallax is a little wrong and stuff. So we, we like to we like to time the engines one of two ways, either with, with a good digital protractor, which are now like El Cheapo at Home Depot, and that, that measure uh, within the nearest tenth of a degree, um, or on engines that actually have timing marks somewhere, like, uh, like for example, on the Permult Continentals in my 310, there's a little seven-eighths inch timing plug you can remove, and you can actually see timing marks on on the the ring gear that drives the alternator and um so we like to adjust it one of those two ways uh rather than using an old flower pot um and make sure that any error is going to be um uh, on the minus side in other words um if if it has to be off make it a little a little retarded rather than a little advanced because right. advanced is very hard on the hardware and it also causes high cylinder head temperatures got it got it now, the other thing, of course, when we talk temps is oil temp. So if someone's got a high oil temp, where mm -hmm. are we going with that problem? Well, we, we, we like to see oil temperatures running ideally somewhere between 180 and 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it's acceptable to be 10 degrees outside of that boundary, 170 to 210, but anything over 210 is too hot. It, it, it results in now, now when I say too hot, it, it it's not going to damage the engine. It's it's going to damage the oil. <laughs> That's really why why we worry about high oil temperatures because if the oil runs too hot, it's it it oxidizes at an accelerated rate. Hmm. And and if you do have excessive oil temperature, or, or if you are flying somewhere where it's really hard to keep oil temperature, like I I've had a couple times when I was flying out of Las Vegas in the summer. And you sit on the ground with the engines running, waiting for clearance, and it's almost impossible to keep the oil temperatures and uh, you know within the the boundaries that you want them to be kept. So if if you can't avoid uh, over temping the oil, then then you should just change it more often because it, the over temp damages the oil, and, and you want to get rid of it sooner. Um, the uh, Oil is thermostatically controlled. Um, there, there's a thermostat called a vernotherm um, that if it's doing its job correctly, should be holding the oil temperature within fairly tight limits. Um, vernotherms can go bad. 
the seat in which the vernotherm is screwed into. So vernotherm has, has a conical poppet valve at the end of it and that screws into a seat and the seat can conceivably be damaged. So one of the things we want to do when we're troubleshooting something like this is remove the vernotherm and, and look at the wear pattern on, on the, on the, uh, the poppet yep. uh, and, and make sure it, that there's good contact all the way around because there yep. may be a problem there. No form um, debris, anything like that. Uh, the other possibility is that um, the vernotherm's working okay, but the oil cooler just doesn't have enough cooling capacity to handle the the, the heat output of the engine. Um, in which case, the oil cooler may may be clogged up. If it's been a long, long time since the oil cooler was was last flushed out, it may be necessary to remove the oil cooler and send it off to an oil cooler place to have it cleaned. Um, it's kind of important to understand how the whole oil system works. It's, I mean, we think about oil as being uh, a lubricant, but it does a lot more than that. And one of the most important things it does is it, is it cools uh, components of the engine that, that don't have an opportunity to get air cooled. And mm-hmm. probably the most important components are the pistons. If you right. think about it, the pistons get really hot. They're, 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 they participate in the combustion chamber. And they don't have any cooling fins, and they don't have any air flowing over them. And the only thing that prevents them from going into meltdown is the fact that we're splashing a tremendous amount of oil on the bottom of them to try to carry off the heat. And in some engines, there are actually even nozzles called oil squirts that squirt oil on the bottom of the pistons, again, to to cool them off. So, of course, what that does is it cools the pistons off, it heats up the oil. And normally, uh, as the oil circulates through the engine, it gains on the order of 40 degrees Fahrenheit in oil temperature. And then it goes through the oil cooler, which, which cools it back down by 40 degrees and dissipates that heat um, into airflow that's passing through the cooler. The cooler is just basically a, an oil radiator. So it, if, the, if there's not enough air going through the, um, the oil cooler, and that's another baffling issue because one of the things that the baffles have to do is provide uh, a you know pressure differential that forces air through the cooler, or if uh, if the cooler um, has some obstruction that isn't allowing the oil to flow freely through it, uh, that can cause a problem. But the vernotherm is the first thing we want to look at because that's really that's the thermostat. That's the thing that's supposed to be regulating oil. Can you look at that same thing, the vernotherm, which can also fail in a way that keeps your oil too cool, too cold uh, uh, as well. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't block off your oil cooler when you need it as well. Right. The vernotherm works sort of backwards is, is what, what you might think. It's, it's, um, it, it's a very simple device. It, it, it has this poppet valve and it's got a little wax capsule in it. Yep. And the wax expands when it gets hot and contracts when it gets cold. And, and so, uh, the the, the therm, uh and and its seat um, provide a path, an oil path that bypasses the oil cooler. So when the oil is cold and the vernotherm is retracted, um, oil freely bypasses the cooler, and 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 so the oil doesn't get cooled, right? Because we we're, we're trying to get it to heat up. Right. Well, when it heats up enough and it gets to say 180 degrees Fahrenheit, 
Then the wax in the vernotherm expands and closes the poppet valve, blocks off the, the, the bypass, and uh, forces all the oil to go through the cooler and to get cooled. And if the cooler is doing too much cooling, then the vernotherm will back off a little bit and let a little bit of the oil bypass, and it regulates the temperature that right. way. Well, if, if, the, if the poppet valve in the cooler is not um, making firm contact against the seat and isn't closing off that bypass, then you're not going to be, be getting the full cooling uh, potential of the, of the system, and the oil is going to be running hot. Right. So it's sort of a backward system. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, what it's, it's not modulating flow through the cooler directly. It's modulating flow that bypasses the cooler. Yeah. So it's working sort of backwards. Well, Mike, I want to make sure that we have uh, time to get to one of the one of the things that uh, I find fascinating, which is the work that you do with flight test profiles for people with engine monitors, and all the things that you're able to diagnose from those in-flight tests. So I'd love to to hear you talk about that for a little bit. Okay. Well, we you know, Savvy has a whole division that that is dedicated to uh, basically analyzing engine monitor data. Um, it's probably about a third of all the business we do has to do with anal uh, analysis. And uh, as far as I know, we're the only people who, who do that kind of work. We, we've got a, a developed a pretty elaborate um, IT platform uh, that allows data to be uploaded and provides a bunch of graphical tools for, for, for looking at it and, and figuring out what it means. Um, and we make, the platform and all those tools available for free and for to anybody who wants to use them. And there's 10,000 or so um, aircraft owners who regularly upload their data to our system. And a lot of them do analysis on a do-it-yourself basis. And we also offer paid service um, if for people who want to have our analysts look at their data and, and generate reports for them. And we generate all sorts of interesting reports. Um, but one of the things that we like to, uh, uh, our, our clients to do, whether, whether they're paid subscribers or free subscribers, is to uh, fly a, uh, what we call a flight test profile, um, where they go through a certain maneuvers with the engine controls, if you will, not maneuvers, not, not aerobatic maneuvers, but, but they, they manipulate the engine controls in a certain way uh, that's calculated to capture uh, data of, of, of maximum diagnostic value so that after they come down from that flight and dump the data and upload it to the platform, uh, either they, if they're doing their own analysis, or we, if we're doing the analysis for them, um, can learn the most that we can about what's going on with their engine. Um, and there are a number of tests we do, but there are two primary ones I'll talk about. And, and one is the ignition system stress test, and the other is the mixture distribution test, or otherwise known as a gamma lean test. Um, the ignition system stress test, very simply, is just an in-flight mag check um, uh, done at, at, at cruise power at, as, at the leanest possible mixture, uh, preferably a lean and peak mixture, but the leaner the better. Um, it turns out that the mag check that we have all, we're all taught as student pilots to do, you know, in the right up area just before we take off is, um, 
a, a test that will only reveal the grossest of ignition system problems because it's testing the ignition system in a very non-demanding environment um, at, at a very low power setting, you know, typically 2000 RPM for Lycomings or 1700 RPM for Continentals. And if you follow the, the, the POH, which I don't recommend, <laughs> Uh, at, at a rich mixture, uh, I, I actually recommend doing even doing the the, the ground check um, at at a pretty aggressively lean mixture. But the POH is all say mixture full rich and so on, which is not really good advice. But that's what they say, and that's what most people do. Um, a low power rich mixture uh, is provides. It, it, even a marginal ignition system can ignite a mixture like that. So, so the ignition system can be in, in, in pretty crummy shape and still pass that kind of a mag check. Yep. So the, the, the test that we like to do is, is one that's in flight um, at moderately high power, 65% or something, you know, some comfortable cruise power. And at the leanest mixture, um, that that the pilot is comfortable with and preferably a lena peak mixture because the higher the power and the which means the higher the the the, the instantaneous combustion chamber pressure and the higher and the leaner the mixture the harder it is to ignite and for the purpose of this test we want the hardest possible mixture to ignite because we want to test the ignition system under the most demanding conditions um, to make the test more sensitive and to make the test uh, reveal incipient problems with the ignition system that aren't bad enough yet to, to cause problems, but are early warnings of something that we really need to take care of before they get worse. Um, so we, we recommend, you know, setting the aircraft up and cruise at, at, a, at a lean mixture and then doing a mag check, but a very slow mag check. We recommend turning turning off, uh, you know, say say going to the left mag, and leaving it there for a while. And how long a while is kind of depends on the sampling rate of the engine monitor. But we 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 would like at least ten data samples uh, running on that one mag. So if the engine monitor is a is a modern one that that samples it once per second, then ten seconds we'd say on the, on the one mag. If the engine monitor is, um, say, an old JPI EDM 700, we recommend um, programming it to its maximum sampling rate, which for the EDM 700 is every two seconds, and we'd want to be there for 20 seconds, which is 10 sample right. time. The default sampling rate for, for an EDM 700, or most of the old JPI monitors, is every six seconds, which means you'd have to stay on one mag for a whole minute. That's why we kind of recommend cranking up the, the sample rate. Um, and then going back to both for 10 samples and then going to the other mag for 10 samples and then going back to, to both. Um, and that, that completes the ignition stress test part of the flight test profile. You know, what's interesting, Mike, is some people are nervous about doing that. Well, the, they shouldn't be nervous. Um, the, the, for, first of all, If the engine passed the the crude uh, uh, mag check 
that you do before takeoff, you're pretty sure that you don't have, that neither mag is dead. Um, so nothing terrible is going to happen. But if, in the worst situation where, say, a mag completely went dead, um, you, you would you would turn it to one mag and if, if you turn it to the, to the good mag, you'll immediately know that something's not right because the EGT bars won't rise. And you'll say, hmm, the EGT bars didn't rise. I must be running on this one mag. I'm, all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and at that point, you, you have all the information you want to know and you, you, uh, you, you don't proceed. If you if you are unlucky and you go to the bad mag, you know the engine will quit. And at this point, you just have to remember one thing: uh, if if you were to if the engine did, and this is a very low probability event, obviously, but if if the engine did quit, and then you just did the instinctive thing, which was to say "oops" and went back to both, you'll probably hear a pop. Now, the pop the pops probably not going to hurt anything. It's just going to startle you. And the reason you heard the pop was because if you turn off the ignition system, the engine's still turning. It's still, it's still bringing in fuel air mixture and it's not igniting it. And so it's sending it out the exhaust. So then when you go back to both, the exhaust system is, is full of unburned fuel air mixture. And when the engine lights back off, it's going to ignite that stuff and it's going to make a funny noise. Um, I've never heard of it hurting anything, but it startles a lot of people. Um, if you if you would like not to be startled and you'd like to be really, really kind to your exhaust system, the the right thing to do is if you go to one mag and the engine quits, pull the mixture, it'll cut off, turn the mag back on, then bring the mixture up and start the engine that way, and then you won't get the pop. Right. But, um, I mean, I've been doing this for more years than I care to talk about and I've, I've never ever had a problem doing it because what we're talking about is what would be the most extraordinary event of a mag that was fine on the ground and then went totally dead in the air that right just doesn't happen very often yeah i think people i think there's just people i've certainly heard from some of them that are always a little nervous about going and touching a control that they just don't normally touch in flight and one of the pieces of advice I give them is watch your hand while you do it. Because the one thing that, uh, that that could happen that might startle you is don't go to off. You know, keep yourself oh, yeah. going to left and right. Yeah. Look at what you're doing. You will get uh, startled if you accidentally go and flip it all the way over to and, off. And if you, if you did go to off, the same the same caution applies. If you, if you do go to off, you know, the instinctive thing is to go back to both. But what you really ought to do is pull the mixture control, then go back to both, then push the mixture control back just to right. to avoid the possibility of what's called an after fire, which is right. what the official name of the pop is. So, um, but, anyway, uh, so from, by, but by gathering this data, there's a whole lot of stuff we can tell by looking at the data. First of all, if we have a marginal spark plug, and then when we then we run on that one mag for for ten sample times, when we look at the trace, we'll see that the EGT uh, for the cylinder with that marginal spark plug uh, is very um, is very ragged. Um, and the reason it's very ragged is because the marginal spark plug is igniting the mixture successfully sometimes and failing to ignite it sometimes. 
And so we're, we're going we're gonna to see that very clearly in the EGT trace. And that's why we want 10 samples worth to be able to see that. Another thing that, that we'll often see when you do this in-flight mag check is that the EGTs will rise when you're on one mag and they'll go back down and then they'll rise on the other mag, but they won't rise the same amount. Now, it, it's, it's perfectly normal for, um, say, odd cylinders to rise more than even cylinders on one mag and the, to reverse on the other mag. That's normal. But if in the aggregate, the EGT rises significantly more on one mag than the other, that's indicative of the fact that two mags aren't timed the same. Mm. And on most engines, they're supposed to be timed the same. Um, so when we see a, a split time magneto, which again is very clear from the data, uh, we can't quite tell which of the two magnetos is the one that's wrong, but we know that one of them has to be wrong because they're not timed the same. So we then suggest rechecking the timing and of course we talked a little earlier about just how critical mag timing is that you really need to be within a degree and if it's if it's advanced you know more than a degree or so you're going to see high cylinder head temperatures so when anytime we see uh, a split mag condition in in a in a uh, in an ignition stress test we we suggest you know getting out the buzz box and checking the mag timing carefully right. and making figuring out what's wrong the other test that we uh, that we do in the uh, in the flight test profile is is this mixture distribution test or or gammy lean test and basically what that is is it's it's a series of very slow smooth mixture sweeps going from a rich mixture to a very lean mixture normally you, you, we lean it very slowly until the engine starts running quite rough and then we gradually rich in it again to a pretty rich mixture and then lean it again until it starts running rough. Do that several times and try to do it as slowly and smoothly as possible. Um, and what we're looking for is to be able to identify where each individual cylinder reaches peak EGT and determine what fuel flow um, each, each individual cylinder reaches EGT at. If the engine monitor um, captures fuel flow, then that's ideal because we, we can tell, in fact, we have a software tool that we just point at the data that pops out with all the, the answers. If the uh, engine monitor does not monitor fuel flow, that, then the, somebody in the cockpit has to actually write down the fuel flow as each cylinder goes to peak. That's one of the reasons that we recommend when people ask us about engine monitor installations, we always recommend that they include fuel flow Right. As, as, as part of the engine monitor, most modern engine monitors have that, that, that is a feature. Do you worry at all by going slowly there? Obviously you don't want to linger in any point of there that, that is uh, kind of in the red box as. as right. We, we, we recommend doing this at 60% power or less so that the, basically there isn't a red box okay. because we are going very, very slowly there. And that's a very good point, Jeff. We, we wouldn't want to run this test at 75 or 80% power because it would be abusive. Right. Um, so, so your we other recommend test doing it at, at a low power cruise. Right, so your ignition test is generally at high power, and your Higher fuel flow test yeah. is generally at lower power. That's that's right. Just just to to make sure that we're not doing anything abusive. Um, and what we're trying to do is is determine you know which is the richest cylinders, which are the leanest cylinders, and most importantly, how far apart they are. 
Hmm. And and the we we measure the 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 um, measure of quality there is what's called a GAMI spread, and it was developed by originally by George Brawley at General Aviation Modifications Inc., who are the guys that in, invented the GAMI ejectors. Um, and and it basically is you, you take the fuel flow um, uh, at which the 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 first cylinder to peak uh, reaches peak, which would be the richest cylinder, excuse me, the leanest cylinder. And then you take the fuel flow at which the last cylinder peaks, which is, which is the richest cylinder. And you look at the difference and the difference, which is measured in gallons per hour typically is, is the, uh, is called a GAMI spread. Um, for fuel injected engines, we want the GAMI spread to be something less than one gallon an hour normally. If it's more than one gallon an hour, the engine probably won't run smoothly with lean mixtures. Um, and there'll be some other consequences having to do with uh, uneven cylinder head temperatures and stuff. Um, and so we, we will then look to see which cylinders are the leanest. The first thing we normally would recommend is cleaning those nozzles and seeing if it makes a difference, repeating the test. If cleaning the nozzles doesn't bring the GAMI spread to an acceptable level, then we start talking about um, uh, changing the, the, the size of the nozzles to bring the cylinders closer together, putting larger nozzles on the leaner cylinders or smaller nozzles on the richer cylinders in order to bring them all in line. So you only another. focus on cleaning the ones that are that are leanest? Yeah, in fact, in, in general, we don't like to do prophylactic nozzle cleaning un unless we see some indication on the engine monitor that there might be a, a dirty nozzle. Okay. If, if the if the GAMI spread is is good, and we we like to try to bring it down to about a half a gallon an hour or less, mm -hmm. um, then there's no reason to mess with the nozzles. And what we found in practice, and I've talked to George about this, and he has the same experience, is that when mechanics clean nozzles, um, they're at least as likely to contaminate them as they are to do any good. We we really don't like to to see the fuel system taken apart. Now, if you think about fuel nozzles, um, they're self-cleaning. They've got a very effective solvent running through them all the time. <laughs> exactly. And the, time, the only times, for example, I've ever had um, uh, uh, restricted nozzles on my airplane in the, in the 32 years that I've been flying and maintaining it is right after um, maintenance where the fuel system was opened up. Because anytime you open up the fuel system, there's the opportunity to get some sort of foreign material in there, which will propagate its way through the fuel system until it gets to a really tiny orifice, which is usually usually the usually the fuel nozzle in a, in a fuel-injected engine. Um, the, if, the, if the fuel system is, is closed up, the fuel gets strained three times in a row. It gets strained in, 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 in the, in the, the um, yeah, three times. It's, it's, it's strained through a fairly coarse screen and typically at, at the pickup in the tank. Then it goes through a finer screen in the, in the gas plate or fuel strain or whatever you want to call it. Then it goes through an even finer screen in the fuel control unit um, or fuel servo. And, it, you know, 
it's going to be squeaky clean by the time it, it, it gets to the flow divider and into the nozzles. Exactly. Um, so normally, um, opening up the fuel system causes more harm than good. So we try not to do it in, unless we have to. And then we want to do it with, you know, in clean room conditions, preferably, you know, with gloves on and stuff like that. So we don't, it's, it's so easy to get a little glob of grease or something in, in anything, there when you have the fuel anything. system opened up. So, so we don't, yeah, we don't normally recommend doing prophylactic um, uh, nozzle cleaning. A lot, a lot of shops like just normally routinely take the nozzles out and, and, and put them in a jewelry cleaner full of hoppies number right. nine every year. Uh -huh. We, we don't recommend doing that unless there's some indication that, that there might be a restriction and, and that would show up with a, with a GAMI uh, test that has a widespread and showing some, some cylinder that's a lean outlier. Then, then we would, before we start messing with a different size nozzle, we'll say, take, take the nozzle you got and clean it. Right. If it, if, if it was working okay, you know, six months ago and it's not working okay now, maybe it just got dirty. So. Right. Well, it makes perfect sense, and I'd like to certainly, again, put another endorsement out there for anyone uh, watching to go and take advantage of your services. Uh, I think the, the the free services are amazing, but uh, the, the subscription services that you offer, there's some really incredible value uh, in that. And so, I mean, obviously, we're, we're out of time tonight, but there were so many questions that came in we didn't get to. Of course, so many topics, which is why I love it that you're such a regular guest here with us on Social Flight Live. Really appreciate that. And, of course, you are going to be back again uh, September 1st with us. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. Well, I don't know what we'll, we're talking about yet, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. I'm going I'm to try to get you to talk about Lena Peak. We'll talk about it. We'll start hitting some of the more questions that people have uh, submitted here, uh, and we'll have another fun, fun conversation. So I'd just like to thank you again for taking the time uh, to uh, to join everyone here. We had a, a packed house, and, and it's really great. Uh, you, of course, always live up to your billing as the best known. A&P and IA in general aviation, there's a reason for that. Yeah, it looks like we came pretty close to hitting that thousand limit tonight. Didn't we, we, we did. I've got a lot of apologies that are going to be sent out to the people because yeah. we a lot of people hit, hit hit up against that tonight. Oh, really? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't know if that's good news or bad news. I think it's pretty good news. I, yeah, I exactly. Have to have a packed we, house. Jeff, I, I just want to mention one more thing before we quit, uh, just uh, because it's a timely thing. Um, Savvy uh, has a. a 24-7 breakdown assistance service, one of the things that we do uh, to help uh, people who are stuck in airplanes away from home with, with problems. And uh, during the COVID-19 lockdown, we decided to make that service free. And we've had a lot of people take us up on it. Um, that free period uh, is, is officially going to end a uh, day after Labor Day. So uh, I think it's September 8th. Um, and those people who have signed up for the free service will at that time get a, I'm not going to say what it is, but it's kind of an unbelievable deal. If they want to continue the, the service on a paid basis, it's going to be in a, a huge discount from what we normally charge. So anybody who might be interested in that, um, you've got till September 8th to sign up for the free service and to get in on the on the deal. And I just wanted to mention that because it's coming up. I appreciate up, that. Coming and up you soon. certainly have my support on that. I mean, that your your free breakdown service and then paying for it at uh, even at its normal price is a, is a huge value. And so it's good to know that there, if you to everyone out there, message 
sign up for the free service now, get the deal, get the discount. You're going to want to take advantage of it uh, after Labor Day when, um, when that offer comes through for you. Yeah, we've had some some fabulous breakdown saves uh, oh. over the last few uh, over the last few months that that uh, make really interesting stories. They really are, and and I love those stories. You save people so much money, both on a regular basis and on a breakdown basis, and that I think is one of the things that makes you so popular. Well, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Absolutely, I look forward to the next time we do this. Oh, it's a, it, it's always, always a pleasure. So everyone, Mike Bush, CEO of Savvy Aviation. So we will be back again with Social Flight Live next Tuesday. Of course, AOPA President Mark Baker will be joining us on the program next Tuesday. So be sure to tune in for that. It's really going to be a, a, a very informative and inspirational evening learning about his story and what's going on in AOPA during the crisis and some of the things they're doing moving forward. So lots of good information to come from that. Then we have uh, a uh, social flight adventure that's going to be going on that's planned at least at the moment, unless COVID does something to block that, um, that we have. Uh, so uh, we're currently planning on being off for two weeks. And then we are back August 25th with a T-51 Mustang build night. We are going to talk all about this project uh, behind me. And uh, we're going to walk through it. We're going to show you exactly what's going on with that project. Should be a lot of fun. Take your questions. And then, of course, as we just mentioned, September 1st, Mike is back with us. So again, thank you all so much for joining us. Apologies, we didn't get to your questions. We'll be sure to follow up with that uh, with more programs down the road. And thank you again. Blue skies.